0: grows tall The roots grow deep A testament to soil and sea And while the wind The dark clouds rend The tree that lives Has learned to bend I stand in awe of All your wonders, with one word, you humble me. For all you are is all I really need. The waves rise up upon the sea draw their strength from what's beneath A mighty fist that pounds the sand It soon withdraws its weakened hand I stand in awe of all your wonders With one word you humble Encased, secure in bone and flesh The truth be known This fragile cup Breaks in two for want of love I stand in awe of all your wonders With one word you humble me For all you are is All I really need I close my eyes and Strain to listen For the words you speak to me Good morning.
1: Good morning. Uh, my name is John Byron, and uh, I am. One of the pastors here at Big Valley Grace. So, if you're new this morning, I want to welcome you. If you're old this morning, I still want to welcome you. Uh, I'm grateful you're here, and uh, if you're in the venue this morning, we want to say hello to you as well, and uh, glad you're here as well. You may be new in the venue, and uh, that's a good thing. Uh, Our pastor is away, Uh, as you noticed. He's in Israel. Uh, He showed up in a video. I'm always amazed at the many ways that he can show up. And A little concerned about that, that he might show up somewhere where I'm not expecting him. But But I'm grateful this morning that he's allowed me to kind of sit here and be with you guys and uh, share a little from uh, the Scriptures. And we're going to do that. I want to pray for us, and then we're going to get into the Word a bit. And uh, so if you'd bow with me. Lord, we we are grateful to be here. We're grateful that we get the chance to be with the living God. We're grateful that we get to be with the one who created all that we see and all that we know. We're grateful to be with the one that in the midst of creating it all still has time for us. And so this morning we pray that as we listen, that we'd have ears to hear the things that you would speak, that the most prominent voice in the room would be your voice, that we would hear from you. There could be nothing greater than that. Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. We're in a series on uh, what does God say about. And uh, we're filling in the blanks uh, for each week. Last week, uh, Pastor Rick spoke on what does God say about abortion. And if you uh, were not able to be here and hear that, I want to encourage you to go online You can uh, catch that sermon there, and uh, you can get, if you can't go online, we do have them available in CD form in the back uh, in the Resource Center, so you can kind of enjoy that. Uh, This morning, we're going to talk about what does God say about himself, and uh, I really initially when I got that topic, thought I'd just begin with Genesis 1 and read through the whole Bible to you. (laughs) Somehow, I didn't think that would work as well. Um, And so this morning what we're going to do is try to get a little bit of an idea. I find that when we think about what does God say about himself, uh, it's more tainted by what do I say about God than anything else. Um, I find that oftentimes uh, I'm not aware and cognizant of the fact of God's presence even around me, the fact that God might even have something to say about himself. Uh, C.S. Lewis said something that I thought was good as we begin this morning. He said, we may ignore, but we can nowhere evade the presence of God. The world is crowded with Him. And somehow in the midst of God being in our midst, may we have eyes and ears to perceive Him. And uh, I think... You know, when I think about the Lord, I think sometimes in my own life, it's a case of mistaken identity. There's all sorts of ways that I kind of perceive God, ways that I think God should be like. I talk to other people, and uh, they have ways that they perceive God. As we saw in the video, you see ways that people perceive God. And, uh, but I think for many of us, God's just an anonymous force, one who can be defined any way we choose. But I think when we begin to look at God's own revelation of himself, we begin to realize that the living God has not chosen to remain anonymous. He's chosen to make himself known. And so this morning, I want us to think about that. I thought we might take a moment and look at uh, some very personal ways that uh, children think about God. I think children have a great way of expressing things oftentimes that adults seem to lose over the years. So these are some letters to God. It may help you to relate with how we kind of gravitate information or grab information about God. It says this. First of all, this first letter says, Dear God, instead of letting people die and having to make new ones, why don't you just keep the ones you got now? (laughs) A piece of insight. Okay. Uh, Dear God, thank you for my baby brother. But what I prayed for was a puppy. (laughs) Okay. Dear God, if you watch in church Sunday, I will show you my new shoes. I told the last hour, I wondered whether my wife had written that one. But (laughs) dear God... If you give me a genie lamp, like Aladdin, I will give you anything you want. <laughs> Except for my money or my chess set. And then, dear God, maybe Cain and Abel would not kill each other so much if they had their own rooms. <laughs> it works with my brother Larry. Larry. And finally, dear God, I bet it's very hard for you to love all of everybody in the world. There are only four people in our family, and I can never do it. <laughs> when it comes to the infinite God, it seems to me that our words prove so inadequate to describe him. So much of God is a misrepresentation because it's based on our very limited or actual contact with God and what He says about Himself. I think oftentimes the God that we have is the God of our fantasy, the God of our fabrication. It's the God that we would like to be. I remember in my uh, several years ago, I had gone and watched a play, a musical play, based on the story of Peter Pan. And at the end of the play, Peter Pan comes out and uh, Tinkerbell, his uh, companion, is dying. And Peter Pan comes out to the audience and he appeals to the audience. He says, please, please, if you believe in fairies, clap your hands. And as you clap, clap as loud as you can because this will bring Tinkerbell back to life. The audience just in unison claps loudly and claps louder as the moments pass. There are just this sense of energy in the room. I remember when I took my daughter to see this, she was like 10 years old, and she was completely engaged in trying to get Tinkerbell to glow again. And I thought about that, and I thought about how often we can kind of look at the Tinkerbell occasion there, this bringing back to life of this fairy and well, that may have worked well to revive Tinkerbell, and that her existence may have been held in the balance by what the audience did, we need to understand that God's existence is not based on what the audience does or believes. We need to understand that God's existence is not based on what you believe about Him. But really it's our existence that is dependent on His being. God is not a fairy tale made real by our belief in Him. But we are those whose very existence and reality are made possible by God. And so as we begin to think about this idea of who God is... It's so easy to get kind of overwhelmed. There is a lot to think about. But today, rather than to try to listen to how we might describe God, I think it might be good to listen to how God describes Himself. So, first of all, we need to pay attention to the source material. And it's pretty evident the best source material we have out there is the Holy Scriptures. God's revelation of his story and the story of humanity. The phrase that the prophets used throughout the prophets was, Thus says the Lord. What we need to understand is God is saying something about himself, he is saying something about life, and he communicates and connects that word with himself. We don't need to necessarily believe that God is anonymous. We can trust that God is dying to reveal Himself to us. He longs for us to know. And in the revelation that He makes, He comes to us in the Scriptures. Thus says the Lord. The book of 2 Peter describes it this way in chapter 1. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. To begin with, we must let God speak for Himself when determining what He's really like. The assumptions we make about God based on hearsay are so often limiting and so often inaccurate. We forget that He has left us a record in the Bible describing Himself that we might know Him. I remember when uh, my nephew was uh, little, he was probably five, four or five years old, and my sister would tuck him in a bed at night, and, you know, they'd pray together, and every night she'd ask him, would you like to ask Jesus into your heart? And every night, he said, no. Now, that could be a little disconcerting, and finally, after many attempts of asking that question and having the same answer, she finally asked, why? And he said, I'm afraid of the Holy Ghost. I thought, man, oh, man, you know, who would have thought? All those conceptions of some sort of being that you can't get a handle on. And to some degree, there is a theological connection there because God is something that you cannot get a handle on. But he is not some ghostly presence, frightening small children at Halloween. He is the living God. And so we look at this God, this God who comes to us, and we want to let him speak for himself. But we also must realize that God revealed himself with a purpose in mind. The revelation of God to us has some sense of direction and purpose. And that revelation pretty simply is that he'd love to have a relationship with us. Isn't that great? God reveals Himself so that we might have a relationship with Him, and so that we might glorify Him and as Lord in all that we do, that we would somehow connect with God. And finally, we must understand also that we're trying to capture with our finite minds the infinite nature of God. We must be satisfied that there's more to know than we could ever cover in a sermon, cover in a lifetime, or cover in a whole humanity of lifetimes. God is this infinite being. But the cool thing about that is is the adventure in coming to know God is that there's always more to be discovered. How... Special it is to think that somewhere along the line he's always surprising you don't you like that in relationship isn't it kind of neat to keep getting to know someone that there's more my wife and i've been married for a few years and you know there are always things that she surprises me with and there's something intriguing about that it's inviting it pulls me in further my mom and dad were married for 64 years can you imagine all the things they discovered about one another? I remember after they'd been married for like 30 years, my uh, dad was talking about my mom, and he said, yeah, you know, uh, she, she loves the color blue. And, and you could see in all the gifts that he gave her, shoes, dresses, all that, blue. And she stopped him in the mid-sentence. She said, no, I don't. I love the color red. You love the color blue. Discovery. Whoa, okay, you know. A whole half of a lifetime to figure that one out. But then to turn around and discover something new and to be able to approach God with a new awareness. Something new. This is the God that invites you to know Him. So today, we're going to narrow the focus a bit. Rather than starting in Genesis and going through the whole Bible, we're going to take one guy. We're going to look at Moses. And one way that God described Himself to Moses. And in that description, hopefully we will find some very fundamental things. So, these are six... We short phrases that God uses to describe Himself. And we want to recognize those. Those are the things we want to recognize this morning. If you are into filling blanks, you've got one to fill in. okay. And if you don't care, put it, anything in there that you want. I'm sure it'll work. When you read... In Exodus 34, and you start in verse 1, it goes like this. The Lord said to Moses, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready in the morning, and then come up on, the mount, on mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning, as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshiped. Lord, he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. I love this story. The story starts out really with Moses saying to God, you know, I'd love to see your glory. And God says what you've asked for is kind of a difficult thing, but here's what we'll do. You can't see my face, because if you were to see my face, you would die. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to let you see my back. I'm going to put you in the cleft of a rock, and I'm going to pass in front of you, and I'm going to put my hand over your eyes. And then as I pass by, I'll take it away, and you will see my glory from behind. And so he does that with Moses. He puts him in this place. But in the part of uh, Exodus 34 that we're talking about, he begins to, he tells Moses, before you come up, This is what i want you to do i want you to chisel out two stones like the first ones and you got to understand that just before this moses had gone back with the original version of the ten commandments and he had found that the children of israel had decided they were going to build a god they made a golden calf to worship and he takes the tablets and just tosses them and they break and then he pleads on behalf of the children of Israel that God would not destroy them. And God hears his prayer. But now you come back and God says, okay, we're starting over. This is where we're taking this. We're going to do this covenant thing again. And he tells them to come up on the mountain, chisel out these two stones, and bring them up so that I can write on them. And I loved that. I love the idea that God asked Moses to bring up two blank tablets so that he could write on them who he was. And oftentimes what I think that I do is that I come to God, I approach God, and my tablets are all full. They've got all the things that I think about God or all the things I wish God was or all the things I'm hoping God will do. I've come with a whole list of things to God. Here's my two tablets, God. There isn't a whole lot of room for you to write. What Moses is told to do by the Lord is to come up and bring blank tablets. And I think in our relationship with the Lord, one of the things that we can profit from, gain from, is if we will come to the Lord with blank tablets. And allow Him to write on those tablets the message that is going to be significant for us. For our lives. Because God is longing to speak to you. He wants you to hear from him. So God tells him to come up, and he does. And then he takes him and he puts him in that little cleft of the rock, and then it says that he passed by. And in passing by, he says some things to him. And this morning, I want us to kind of look at these six phrases that really God uses to describe himself. And they start out with this. God says, first of all, the Lord, the Lord. Right there he begins in verse 6. He says, "Passing, passing by in front of Moses, proclaiming, I am the Lord. And in that little phrase right there, there's a lot of stuff going on because the Lord, that word there in the Hebrew language is the word that we would hear as Yahweh. It is the covenant name that God made with His people. and that word is based on a hebrew verb the verb to be so when god passes in front of moses he says my name is yahweh yahweh is passing in front of you and that word that he is describing has some implications some things about god you see For God to share his name with Moses was something that wasn't just sharing kind of like a a handle, a moniker, some label. But it was really describing to Moses something about who he was. When we give something a name, it usually is descriptive of what that thing is. Now some of us in naming our children maybe have picked names that we have no idea what they mean. But for the Hebrew, when they named something, it reflected Something about that person, the character, the being that they were describing. So as God comes and shares his name with Moses, he's sharing more than just the word. He's sharing with him something of his being, his character. And he calls himself Yahweh. He calls himself I am. It's the name that when Moses starts out this journey back in Exodus 3 and God shows up in a burning bush, you might remember that that Moses actually was pasturing his father's fa- uh, father-in-law's flock and God shows up. It says that Moses saw a burning bush off in the distance and he saw the bush and it was being burned but it wasn't being consumed. In other words, it wasn't turning into ash. So It was something that aroused his curiosity and it drew him in. And when he arrived at the place where the bush was, all of a sudden the bush spoke to him. So if it wasn't enough that it wasn't burning up, now it's talking to him. You can imagine that this might have been a bit disconcerting. If any of you today go out and find a bush that's burning and it's talking to you, you need to call us. Because we'd all like to be there. And so as God begins to speak out of this bush, he says, take off your sandals. This is holy ground. And he says, Moses, I've selected you. You're going to take the children of Israel out of bondage, out of this place of Egypt, and you're going to lead them into the promised land. And I'm sure Moses is sitting there going, okay, I'm being told by a bush what the next part of my life is going to be about. But he has questions. He has several questions. But one of the questions he asks has to do with this whole idea of God sending him to these people. And he says this, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel. I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent you. That is where they derive that name Yahweh from. That is what God describes himself as. And in describing himself as I am, as Yahweh, It says some different things about Him. First of all, it says that God as an I am in the present tense is current to whatever time frame life is in. God is current in the past. He is current in the present. And He will be current in the future. He is I am in each of those places. So when I think of the God of my father's, and I think of how you related to them, I can know that that same God shows up in the now with the same character to be the God that is to me the great I am. And He will show up in future generations that way. He will show up in my future that way. Yahweh means very simply the one who exists and is present. And He is present for all eternity. He is present before the foundations of the earth begin. When someone asks whether God exists, God has a very simple answer for them. I am. But also in describing Himself by this verb, to be, God emphasizes, first of all, His being rather than His doing. Now, we live in a culture that oftentimes defines us by what we do. If you're in a conversation with somebody and you're being introduced to them for the first time, one of the questions you might ask, in fact, maybe it's the first question, what do you do? And how easily we begin to find ourselves being defined by that phrase, what do you do? Now, obviously, God does many things, but it's interesting to me that He didn't describe Himself as As I do. He described himself as I am. And in that place of being, we need to understand that God is content being himself. He doesn't have to prove anything, he doesn't have to do something to show his value to himself. He doesn't have to accomplish anything to be valuable, to be exalted. His very existence makes Him worthy of exaltation. When God says, I am, one of the greatest gifts He he gives to us is that He is with us, being with us, no matter what the circumstances we're in. Whatever and wherever we are, God is with us. He is there being with us in that place, in our present. But this has implications for humanity as well. And one of the implications for humanity is is that we are made in God's image. We are made in the image of the one who describes himself as I am. Not as I do. And being made in that image of the one who is the great I am, we too have value that is not based upon what we do. That God looks at us as valuable and we are considered valuable by God because of the image that we bear, which is the image of God who is valuable in and of Himself. The way we might best understand this is with a psalm. Psalm 127, verse 1, verse... 4. It's verse 4. It says, children are a gift from the Lord. Familiar with that verse? Children are a gift from the Lord. Some of you have children and you're wondering. <laughs> That's... I get that. Children are a gift from the Lord. Now imagine for a moment that you have a child in your arms, and most of the time when we think of a child as a gift from the Lord, we're looking at that little infant and we're saying, this is amazing. How many of of you are enamored with little babies? Okay. You're easily entertained. Okay? That child has not done anything that would warrant that kind of attention. That child hasn't done something to make themselves seem valuable in the context of the world that we live in. They haven't, you know, created a vaccine for, you know, some terrible disease. They haven't performed in some way that everyone has recognized them as uh, some artist. They've not done anything. They are there in those arms of a loving parent, and there they sit. And everyone looks at that and goes, whoa, that is incredible. Now imagine for a moment that the living God looks at you. He holds you in His arms, and He says, this is the one that bears my image. This is truly incredible. You see, we can get so caught up in what we do and trying to somehow find value in that that we forget that before you did anything, God had already deemed you as something that was worth His time. And His energy. And His life. Have you lost sight of that infinite value you have to God? Have you found yourself trying to do the next thing that's going to get you recognized? The next thing that's going to make you stand out? Rather than recognizing that in the eyes of God, there is a sense of great love and value that He places upon you. The second thing that God says about Himself is that He is the compassionate and gracious God. The word compassion is a word that reflects the deep feeling that God has for helpless humanity and the action that He takes as a result of that feeling. It is a gracious response toward us. Undeserved, yet still generous. That God embodies in the way He lives. This is the way God is. He is compassionate and gracious. God describes Himself as compassionate and gracious. And though He is the Lord whose authority is just over all things, that He could make any kind of decision He wants, He chooses to respond to us with that compassion and grace, to rule in His kingdom with compassion. Psalm 145.9 says, The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all He has made. Consider for a moment that you are part of the all that God seeks to have and has compassion on. The word compassion in the Hebrew language has an association with the womb. It usually has some sense of the movement of the womb toward another with tenderness and care. It's in a sense it's this place where birth is given to love. That out of God's womb, something is being birthed toward you that is good, that is concerned, that is caring. That is how God is. That is how God describes Himself. I was reading a book on compassion, and the author said this, Compassion asks us to go where it hurts, to enter into places of pain, to share brokenness, fear, confusion, and anguish. Compassion challenges us to cry out with those in misery, to mourn with those who are lonely, to weep with those in tears. Compassion means Full immersion into the condition of being human. And this is exactly what God does, and ultimately what He does through Jesus. I find in my life that I can be tremendously self absorbed. I don't know if any of you have that going on in your life. But I find that I can easily make myself the center of the universe where all things need to come my way. And in that self-absorption, it gives me very little time to really be thinking about anyone else. And one of the things I think God is trying to speak to me is the fact that when I understand that He is the compassionate and gracious God, I can begin to let go of my self-absorption because I know that God is absorbed with me. That He is directing himself toward me in care and concern. And what that can potentially do is free me to care for others. When I am consumed with myself, I probably will not have a lot of space for compassion for other human beings. Until I begin to recognize in my own life that God is compassionate toward me, that God continues to be compassionate toward me, I probably will be holding on to that place of how am I going to get through life? Henry Nouwen says this, God's compassionate heart does not have limits. God's heart is greater, infinitely greater than the human heart. It is the divine heart that God wants to give us so that we can love all people without burning out or becoming numb. It is for this compassionate heart that we pray. And you see, I believe that God wants to take and exchange my heart that is so continually self-absorbed with a heart that is truly His, that is compassionate toward others. That He longs to make this sense of a change in me, a transformation, that my heart would be His heart. And that I would begin to express to others what He has expressed to me. When I was in college, one of the things that happened was I went to this small Christian college in Santa Barbara and... While I was there, there was another student there. His name was Jerry, and Jerry was 6'7", so he was rather imposing. And he had been uh, at the school on a basketball scholarship. He was past his uh, eligibility, and so now he was just getting his degree. But he was one of the most phenomenal volleyball players I had ever seen. He could jump, and vertical jump at 6'7", doesn't have to be a lot, but he had vertical jump, and he could get up, so his waste was at the top of the net now if you're playing volleyball against a person that can do that and you're on the other side of the net that can be rather frightening and it was but i had great admiration for jerry and his ability to play volleyball he was incredible now on the other hand I had probably what would be described as a fairly pharisaical eye. And as a spiritual person, I would have rated Jerry kind of low on the totem pole. Where he was a physical giant, spiritually I would not have considered him a giant. And I remember one day I was driving through Santa Barbara, and at that time Santa Barbara Highway 101 was you stopped at lights as you went through the city. And so there were like four lights that you had to go through to make it through Santa Barbara on Highway 101. And as I was driving on out into Isla Vista, which was out further from where I was, uh, I was making, doing a little errand, and I was going to be gone for a little bit. I had a little place I needed to be. And I was driving through and stopped at one of those lights, and as, just as I was accelerating after the light, I saw this older man uh, stumbling across highway 101 and he came to the center divider of highway 101 and he collapsed there and just he collapsed just about the time he was to the side of my window here and i wondered what his story was and that's about as far as it went and I kept driving on and I remember that I got out to where I was did my errand turned around and was coming back and as I returned I remember I, I thought in my mind I wonder what happened to the guy that fell in the middle of the thing there, and he just seemed to lay there. And as I drove back, I kind of was looking, and as I looked, all of a sudden I noticed that where he had fallen, there now was this VW Beetle that had actually pulled up and parked itself right on the center divider there, and the door was open, and there kneeling next to this guy was a man dressed in a pair of slacks, blue shirt, tie, kneeling down next to this guy who had fallen. And I thought, wow, that's impressive. And then I saw that it was Jerry. And I realized that all that I wasn't, Jerry had become. And I realized that God's compassion is all that I am not, that He longs to be through me. And I believe that God longs to exchange our hearts for something better than we live with now that self-centered self-serving self-absorbed self self that we can so easily be I believe God wants to give us something different because he is the compassionate and gracious God and if we're going to know compassion and grace we better get to know him the third thing that God says about himself is that he's slow to anger and I like this one because I'm sure there are many things in my life that God could be angry with. So I, I like this. God is slow to anger and it means long suffering. Macrothemia is the Greek word, it is the word patience. In other words, it's that God has a long fuse. And in my life, there are many occasions where the short fuse would probably be appropriate. I know how I respond in situations. I know what it's like to stand in the checkout counter waiting in line to get to that place where I can pay my bill and get out of the grocery store. And I know what it's like to stand in the line and look at the person in front of me and say, they have way too much food there. No one can eat that much in a lifetime. Now, of course, I'm not looking at what I've brought to the checkout counter, but I am quick to point out, and there is probably one of the greatest examples of my sense of impulsiveness, the sense of impulsive anger that comes in those places, the places where the fuse is short. I've been impressed with my own children. Uh, My children would tell you that they grew up in a place where their father had a tendency to uh, kind of explode, okay? And in that place, I regretted my explosions greatly, but they were there. Things like, you know, don't cry over spilt milk. Well, we didn't. We just exploded at them. And, and, you know, the children kind of blew out the sides, and, you know, we kind of put them back together afterwards. I am so grateful for my children and for the grace of God in their life because God's grace has done something far more than the example of their father. My children sit at a table with their children... And they see a glass of spilt milk and I'm waiting. I'm waiting for the explosive moment and it's not there. There's patience. My children are a great example to me. And I believe that God longs to share with us His patience. And if you begin to look at the history of humanity and you follow humanity all the way through, I think you would see how patient God has been with us as a human race. There have been many occasions I believe that God could very easily have said that's the end. It's over. Psalm 78.38 says, Yet He was merciful. He forgave their iniquities and did not destroy them. Time after time He restrained His anger and did not stir up His full wrath. Time after time. How often do you think you need the patience of God? And if God is so patient with you, might it not be impetus to be patient with others? Might it not be reason? The fourth way that God describes Himself is that He is abounding in love and faithfulness. 1 John 4 says this, So we know and rely on the love of God, the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in them. I think it's fair to say that chief among the ways that God describes Himself is as His love. But this love is a generous love, a love overflowing from the very source of love. The Hebrew word chesed is a word that means committed, faithful love. It's a word that oftentimes is translated as loving kindness. And it just has this sense of covenant to it. It has this sense of being true to a covenant. When God describes himself as He's love and faithful. He's basically saying that I am dependable in the way I love you. I'm dependable in the commitment I've made to you. And how often are we those that are longing for people to be dependable in the commitment that they have made to us? And every day of our lives, God comes and He speaks these words. I love you, and I'm committed to you, and I will do it every day Throughout eternity. Imagine for a moment that God's love is like a number too large to count. The love God shows, which is dependable, is too great to imagine. This is the love which is rich and dependable. The New Testament makes two statements that I want us to think about this morning. The first one is God is love. And that means that the origin of love is God. But also, the true nature of love is defined by God. And if we're going to look at what love is, it's helpful to begin to look at what God's like and how He loves us. The second verse, in a sense, shows us a bit of that. It comes from the book of Romans. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. It says, God demonstrates His love toward us in that while we were still or yet sinners, Christ died for us. And what you begin to understand is that God's love is a love that was willing to take His own Son and lay it down sacrificially for you and I. This is a love that is sacrificial, but it is also a love to the undeserving, so that while we were still sinners, God shows up and says, I want to demonstrate or prove my love to you. How are you experiencing the love of God in your life? Do you have that sense that God loves you? That sense that every day of your life you awaken to a God that says, I love you and I gave my Son for you. Are you desperately seeking love from sources that will always tap out instead of from a source that is eternal? We have to realize, though, that the way we experience love is oftentimes one of the issues we have to deal with. And I think for most of us, when we talk about love originating with God, we have to understand that that means it originates from perfection. The way that God loves us is perfect. And the ways that God chooses to identify His love are associated with words like transformation, They're associated with words like discipline. So when it talks about God's love, it's not just that idea that God wants to make you feel good. How many of you like to feel good? Okay. If you're not raising your hand, we have issues we probably need to talk about some other time. (laughs) I like to feel good. And so oftentimes, when I think of God as loving me, I want love that makes me feel good. Love me in a way that makes me feel good. Rather than love me in a a way that actually makes me good. And I think God longs to love you in a way that doesn't just make you feel good, but makes you actually good. I believe that God is changing us. He has a design that is really for your best. And sometimes in the midst of that kind of love, there is some pain that goes along with it. I believe that my dad was committed to loving me. My dad was a doctor, and he was... Oftentimes when I was sick, providing the treatment that would help me get well. And even though there was pain associated with it, he didn't seem to shy away from trying to help me get well because he loved me. So when I got an infection, my dad would come home and he'd give me a shot of penicillin. Okay? He would take that needle that looked like it actually had been drawn from some horse out there and... (laughs) And he would inject my hip with this penicillin, and seriously, for three days I couldn't walk. It was painful, I didn't enjoy it, and I used to not tell my dad when I was sick, just for the fact I didn't want the shot. So I would avoid it like the plague. And yet my dad was committed to loving me in such a way that me being dead from an infection wasn't part of the equation. What is God trying to do in your life that may be painful, but may be for your best? I went to junior high, and I remember a friend of mine standing there and saying, you know, I, I have to go to the doctor today because I have an infection. And I just I, all the compassion in me came up at that point in time. I'm so sorry for you. And he said, why? And I said, well, because you have to go and get a shot. And he looked with just just a real questioning look back at me and he said, shot? He said, no, he gives me a pill. (laughs) There's a pill? (laughs) Seriously, there's a pill? I went back to my dad and said, there's a pill? And he said, Yeah, but the shot's much more effective. <laughs> those moments were, I had issues with trust at those times. <laughs> but you see, God is so committed to you that he will do that which is going to be most effective in making you not just feel good, but to become good. The fifth phrase describing God is that he's forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. We see a God that is the great I am. we see a God that is compassionate and gracious. We see a God that is slow to anger, we see a God that is full, abounding and loving love and, and that sense of faithfulness. But now we see a God who is forgiving. So often, I think that my imaginings of God are that the first response He has toward me is punishment. I'm waiting. I turn to God and I'm looking and I'm saying, okay, you know what's going on in my life and you're just waiting to get me. Now that may not be how you see God and I'm grateful if it is not. Underlying in many of the ways I respond is just that hidden belief that somehow I've messed up and God's going to get me for it. But I want you to notice that in the list That God uses to describe Himself, that before He begins to talk about punishing the guilty, He talks about forgiveness. He starts there. He starts there because what He wants me to know is that when I turn toward Him, the face that greets me is the face of forgiveness, not the face of punishment. That He longs for me to know that there is nothing in my life that can't be forgiven. He uses three words. He says wickedness, rebellion, and sin, and pretty much that covers us. It covers the way we respond to Him. It covers the way we do things in life, the way we act, the way we are. It covers it. And yet it says that God forgives. The word forgiveness means to take it up and carry it away, and I love that. Because it really says that sin can be forgiven and forgotten because it has been taken up and carried away. It's the Lord who makes this possible. It is the Lord that comes to us and says, I want to forgive you. And we need to avail ourselves of that. We need to let Him do that. We need to come to Him and say, Lord, here I am. This is the truth, the reality of my life. Please forgive me. But you see, I think a lot of times that's not what we come with. First John says it very well. He says, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and the blood of Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Is that not a cool thing? All I need to turn, do is turn around and say, okay, this is the reality. I can't fool you. So let me just state the reality as it is. I confess to you my sin." And in that place of confession, what we find is a God that is willing to forgive us. The possibility in my life is is that when I see all the garbage, there's the possibility of forgiveness. And rather than running away from God, I should be running to Him. How are you doing with the whole issue of forgiveness? You see, I think for many of us, we've not allowed God to forgive us. We've wanted to hold on to it because we feel somehow that'll make us better. So we don't forgive ourselves. And C.S. Lewis said that when we don't do that, we actually set ourselves up as a higher tribunal than God. But in being forgiven, we are then those that are called to forgive. We're called to extend that forgiveness to others. And when we have been hurt by someone else, by some other person in this world, it is so easy to hold on to that hurt. And what that hurt becomes eventually is just bitterness and resentment. And we hold on to those places rather than forgiving, we hold on to them and what they do is they become like a hot coal in us. And they just burn us from the inside out. And today you may be holding on to some things that you have toward other people that you need to let go of, that you need to let it be lifted up and carried away. Because the God that you come to, the God that I come to, describes Himself as forgiving. And finally, he describes himself as the one who does not leave the guilty unpunished. And this is really God speaking about his justice. The great thing is that when we receive the forgiveness that God offers, we don't have to remain guilty anymore. So we don't have to expect punishment when we come to the Lord with our sins. But when we choose not to avail ourselves of that forgiveness, there is another alternative. And God will deal with sin. He will deal with our sin. And He will deal with us. So you always have choice in that place. I will either bring my sin to God that He might forgive it. Or I'll try to hide my sin from God and suffer later consequences to that sin. Sin that not just affects you, but affects generations. Your children and your children's children. Better to come to God. It is a place that God speaks of His justice. We live in a world where there is lots of injustice. We live in a world where there is much abuse. We live in a world where people cry out who are oppressed. And we need to be those that in God's place in God's name, stand for justice. We need to stand for the man that falls in the middle of the center divider. We need to stand for those that can't stand for themselves. We need to stand alongside them. And we need to celebrate the fact that when God says, I will deal with, I will not leave the guilty unpunished, that we do not need to assume God's role in punishment. It does say God will punish. Too often I think it's my role to punish. And I can make people feel things, boy, oh boy. But more that's about me than it is about God. But when I begin to trust in the fact that God is just, that God is watching, and that God will deal with that which is wicked in this world, that which is unjust in this world, then I am freed to join God in standing with those that are in those places needing justice, needing someone to be with them in those places. God describes himself. And we need to listen. We need to go up that mountain with those blank tablets and let God write on them. So when Moses goes up the mountain and hears all this, he doesn't just walk away like he's just heard a nice sermon, okay? But he responds. He responds appropriately to what God reveals of Himself. And I want to give you just quick three quick responses. The first one is that we should respond in praise. With praise to God. That as Moses hears the descriptions that God says of Himself, He falls on His face. That's what the word worship means. He falls on His face before God. He worships. And you'll notice how active that is. It's not passive. He is engaged. But not only does he praise, but he prays. We should respond with prayer. Not only with praise, but with prayer. And what Moses prays for is pretty significant. He prays for God's presence. He says that, please God, go with us. And he prays for God's pardon. He says, Lord, forgive us, though we're stubborn and rebellious. And he prays that they might be God's possession. That He would take us as His own inheritance. The third thing that Moses does besides praise and prayer is he proclaims. We should respond with proclaiming. When Moses came down the mountain, one of the things that you notice is that his face was glowing and said the children of Israel were frightened of him when he came down. But he drew them together and he began to speak to them about what God had spoken to him. He basically took that which God had given him in his alone time with him and he brought it back to the, the world that he lived in, that they might too understand and worship that God. Moses initially begins his story at a burning bush. And he comes now to this place and what was a burning bush before now becomes a radiant face. Moses is now the burning bush. Standing and proclaiming God's Word to the world. And when we stand in the presence of God and God has impacted us, He calls us to proclaim. He calls us not to just sit passively by, but to take that Word back into these places we are.